I love you, man. Good morning, everybody. It is great to be in the house of the Lord today. And uh, wow, what an inter- that's an introduction that uh, a politician would love and my mother would believe all that stuff. I don't know anybody else would believe all that stuff, but, uh, but it is always a joy to be here with you and uh, to have a, an opportunity to share on a Sunday morning to, to pitch hit, as it were, for our pastor is a great honor. And I was talking with them this week, and they are having a wonderful time. And one of the things that we have always encouraged leaders to do, because traditionally leaders don't do it well, is to take time and rest. Uh, you know, God is a God of margins. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, I preached a message uh, series on the road called Miracle in the Margin. And it's interesting because when God created the world and all that was in it, he actually uh, separated a margin of the world and made a garden out of it. And in that garden, he placed Adam and Eve. And if you look historically, God has always said that create space for me. And if you'll create space for me, then I'll meet you in that space. Uh, I'll come in the tabernacle of the Old Testament, in the temple of the Old Testament. And ultimately, we see in the person of Jesus that God created a margin in the human race and said, I'll meet you there. And so now we meet God in Christ as a margin of humanity. And so time off, sabbaticals are really that. They are times, they are convocations. They're not really vacations, though you may not do a lot of physical things during those sabbaticals. But a true sabbatical is where you set a time aside and then meet with God, and God meets with you there. And how many know there are miracles that happen in the margins? Amen? (laughs) Amen. And so uh, the pastors are on a margin, a time of margin, and we know that they're going to be strengthened and encouraged. And he certainly sent his love, and I said that I would communicate that to it. And We didn't talk about football. I guess Arkansas hadn't lost yet. And I will say that I text one of my Texas. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, a, a pastor in Fort Worth, I did text him last night, but he's really from Louisiana. So I knew I could get by with this, and I said, I'm about to change my allegiance to LSU. And he said, wisdom has come upon you after all these years. And so, but anyway. So, uh, I, you know what, I'll be an Arkansas Razorback till I die. I can't help it, and uh, there's just no good reason for it, though I will say that. Amen. No good reason to be, but other than I just love them. Well, take your Bible in your hands today, and I want to do this a little different. I want you to be seated and just remain seated, and then we're going to stand, because I have a, a little longer passage of Scripture. I want to talk with you today about the law of love, the law of love. Amen. And I feel good to get an amen before I even get started. Thank you, dear. And that, that'll encourage me, uh, the law of love. You know, we talk about a lot of things as if in the, in the Scripture and in the Spirit that there are a lot of laws, maxims, things that work every time. The idea of a law is that it is a law and that you can count on it, that it's always the same way and it's always applied the same way. The law of gravity, for example, you don't have to try to get the law of gravity to work. Uh, If you don't believe that it's working, just step off the edge of the building, and you'll realize it when you hit the ground, that the law of gravity is invisible, but it is there. Well, there is a law of love that governs the universe, and with the help of the Lord, I want to talk about that today. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke, and I want to read a passage there, and then we're going to turn to the Gospel of John, and at that point, I'll ask you all to stand, and we'll honor that passage of Scripture. And then we'll pray together. Is that okay? Is everybody awake and all right this morning? Amen. How many love Jesus today? Amen. Amen. All right. Let's, uh, let's read the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 10, beginning with verse number 25. 
And I want to seam a passage together for you. So I'm going to throw a little bit of a curve to the production team. I'm going to add an additional addendum to this passage just so that you get the, imp the impact here. Beginning with verse 25, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. Luke was a historian of the first order, certainly a theologian as well as a historian. I always love his term certain. Typically that means when Luke used certain that he's not making the story up, that it's a specific person, a real person in the story. It's not parabolic in the sense that he is about to tell a parable or a story, a moral story. This is an actual event. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? In other words, how do you understand it? Verse 27, so he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered with a story. A certain man went down from Jericho, or Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he had saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed... He took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever you spend when I come again, I will repay you. It's a big deal when God says, I'll owe you one. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? He said, says the, the lawyer responding, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. But notice there's another passage there. We'd seldom preach it together. But when Luke is putting his gospel together, he, he masterfully puts this event into order to follow this passage, I believe. Verse 38, now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his words. But Martha was distracted with so much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Tell her, Lord, that there's duties and regulations and rules that must be obeyed around our house. Tell her that the most important thing, Lord is to engage in the, in the uh, action of her lawful duties. And Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. 
You've selected duties and regulations, Martha. But Mary selected love. Now, if you'll turn with me to the Gospel of John, I want to read a passage that you wouldn't have to turn there if you didn't want to, but it's out of the third chapter of the Gospel of John. And I'm going to ask you to stand as we read this together, a very familiar passage of Scripture. In the famous verse, John 3.16 comes to us an iconic nighttime encounter between Jesus Christ and a leader of the Jews, a man named Nicodemus. In the encounter, Jesus introduces a radical focus away from the regulations of the law and toward God's ultimate purpose in his relationship with man. Let's look at the story. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things or the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you, don't, you do not receive our witness. For if I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who, did, who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And Jesus connects the idea of the love of God and the crucifixion of Christ to the lifting of the serpent by Moses in the wilderness. The people had been bitten by fiery serpents, the Bible says, and the venom was killing them. And Jesus said, God spoke to Moses and said, lift up a brazen serpent and tell the people that those that look upon that servant, serpent, that the poison that's in them, that's killing them, will be destroyed itself. And he said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He says, in effect, to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I must look like what's killing them. In the same way that the serpent looked like what was killing the Israelites in the wilderness. In that same way, I must look like what's killing humanity. This is why I must be lifted up. And in that context, he explains about the love of God. Amen.
You can close your Bible. We're going to pray. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you, Lord, for open hearts and open minds. I pray, God, that everything that you want to share today will be shared and that ultimately lives will be changed according to your word in Jesus' mighty name. High five somebody and tell them, get ready for the word of the Lord. Let's hear, let's hear about this story from Nicodemus' own mouth.
Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Love. It is the most powerful force in the entire universe. Love is the fundamental building block of everything in the kingdom. It's a master key. You know, master keys are keys that unlock not one door, but every door. And perhaps there's someone here on the property that has a key that unlocks not just the front door, but every door to this building. That's kind of what love's like in the kingdom. It doesn't unlock one door. It's a master key that unlocks every door. While we get enamored with religion and we get enamored with all the rules and regulations, wanting to be right, and that's not a bad thing, but it's a bad thing when it becomes the focus of our life instead of realizing that it was God's love that was the, the source and the hope of the universe from the very beginning. It was the love of God. Love penetrates. It activates. Love examines the heart. Not for the purpose of exposing us and humiliating us and condemning us, but rather to reveal to us and to woo us from our hiding places and encourage us to come out from where we hide into the safety of the love of God. There is nothing in the world that you will ever experience as powerful as the love of God. Can I get a good amen for that? Amen. It's more powerful. It's the aloe vera for the burned soul and emotions scorched by the fires of life. Love builds bridges and tears down walls. It defends the weak and destroys the proud. The apostle Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians number 13, love never fails. He actually, in the context of that passage, says, Though I speak with tongues of men and angels, and though I know all things in all the mysteries, and have unlimited wisdom, and have all knowledge, though I literally give everything that I possess and give it all to the poor, if I give my body even to be burned, but I do not have love, it is nothing in the big scope of things. Unless it's driven by love. Can I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, today, what will bring revival in the church of America better than anything is a fresh flow of the love of God. The love of God for the lost, the love of God for the body of Christ, the love of God for the church, the love of God for the world. Hallelujah. It was Huey Lewis in the news in 1985 introduced a smash, it became a smash hit song called The Power of Love. Anybody remember that old song? Pop, 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 the power of love. Yeah. Google it when you get home. Not now. It'll be all right later on. It became a rock and roll classic, and I agree with them. The love is powerful, but one thing I do believe also that it's not plentiful. But it's interesting because the, the gospel, I mean, the writer of John, that writes both the gospel of John and John's epistle, literally calls God two things in his writing. Toward the end of his life, as he distills a lifetime of experience, right? He was there when the Beatitudes were given. He was there when there was the feeding of the 5,000. He was there when Jesus worked miracles. And toward the end of his love, this man who had lived all these years with all this experience to draw from, chose to call God two things in essence. He said God is light, and he said God is love. God is love. Now, our culture confuses love and lust, but they are not the same thing. And their differences are revealed in the motivations of them. Lust can masquerade as love, but at its core motivation, it has itself in the end. Lust is driven by self-interest. 
And a lot of times we think about that in a licentious or a sexual way, but how many know there are all kinds of lusts? Lust to, to take care of yourself. Lust to be first and foremost. Lust that, lust that drives you to be arrogant. And pride steps into the picture and perverts this emotion that God had designed, this feeling, this experience of love, and twists it into something that is more meocentric and self-interested. I would say to you today that our culture confuses the two because, sadly, our culture is consumed with self-worship. Can I get an amen for that? Lust is a principle, and its principal expression is idolatry of self. It's self-adoration, and self is the object. And we have to be careful about pride. How many know pride is a terrible thing? Did you know all sin stems from pride? It all begins with pride. You say, well, I don't feel like a very prideful person, Brother Brassfield. I don't. We've all seen people who strutted into the room like they were the best thing since sliced bread. Anybody seen people like that? And, and their, their, their demeanor is arrogant, and we say, well, that's a prideful person. But then we see those who have terrible low self-esteem, and in most cases, low self-esteem is simply pride in disguise. You see, pride is content. It doesn't care whether you are the greatest of the great or the lowest of the low, as long as you are the center focus of your attention. As long as your life revolves around self, it doesn't care whether you feel great about yourself or really bad about yourself. And it's a perversion of love that I would put in the category of lust. Where every situation we tend to think about ourselves first. Is anybody in the room with me? Anybody ever been in a relationship with someone that always thought about themselves first? That's the antithesis of love. I would say that's coming out of a source of lust. Jesus said it this way, no greater love hath any man than to lay down his life for a friend. Love, this is how I would define the difference between lust and love, is love seeks to satisfy, lust seeks to be satisfied. Lust is but a fleeting moment, but love is eternal, unstoppable, and invincible. Lust tears down, but love builds up. True love in an experience, when you have true love, you ought to always leave that encounter, whether it's romantically or with your family or with your church. You should always leave that encounter feeling like more than you were when you went into that moment. If you feel like less, then there's a good possibility that the source of that emotion was lust. True love. Everybody say true love. The power of love. True love is the inspiration for the creative, right? Poets have described it with beautiful lyrics. Artists have attempted to paint it and put it to music. Dreamers have seen it in beautiful shades and tones. I, I, I see some shades and tones that just look like love to me. I, I mean, I don't know about you. Honestly, I, there are colors. We were, we were just last week, we were in Destin, Florida with a pastor and his wife, and we went to a place called Watercolor which is along the, des the coast there near Destin. You go from watercolor, and then you go to seaside, and they have uh, watercolor is kind of a Cape Cod-type community, and they, have, they paint those houses colors that only women understand. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I, that lime green, I'm not sure I've ever, I wouldn't have thought of that. It, but somewhere, somebody in some poetic moment of love imagined a pale green house. Love gives color to the images of the visionary's imagination. Philosophers spend endless hours trying to explain it. And I'll tell you someone who has no clue about what love means, and that's the devil. 
If you hang out with the devil and his crew, you're going to find lust at its worst. But you'll not experience love because the devil doesn't have the capacity to love. Can I get an amen? If you want to know true love, you need to give Jesus a chance. If you want to know love that will transform your life, if you want to know love that will change your family and change your children and change your home for generations to come, then give God a chance to love you. Nobody can love you like Jesus can love you. Nobody can do for you what Jesus can do. Jesus will satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, your body, and your soul like nothing in this universe can. In our story today, in our text about the Good Samaritan, it's a story that the major showstopper, the major star of the show is not the Samaritan really, it's not the man who fell among thieves, it's not the priest or the Levite, no, the, the showstopper in this story is love. But you know, if you study Jesus' teachings, his, both his parabolic teaching and if you study the, the, the messages that he delivered, there was a throbbing reality that was embedded in every message. It was the center verse of the Bible. Did you know John 3.16 is the absolute center verse of the Bible? Isn't that, isn't that ironic? That if you took all the verses of the Bible and divided them in two, you know where you'd land, put your finger on the very center verse, you know what it would be? John 3.16. Embedded in every message, in every encounter, there were over 40 encounters with Jesus and people in the Gospels. And every single one of those encounters, there was a very, very present elephant in the room. But it wasn't a bad one. It was a one that was saying, I love you no matter what you've done. I love you no matter who you are. I love you no matter where you've been. I love you no matter how good you feel about yourself or bad you feel about yourself. I love you. I'll lead you out of your pride. I'll lead you out of your brokenness. I'll lead you out of your despair. I'll lead you out. If you will follow the trail of the light of love that I will cast for you, you can find hope no matter what's going on in your life. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the throbbing message of the Word of God. That's why John, of all the things he could have said about God, the omnipotent creator of the universe, he could have called him by all of his Jewish names and identities. That's why by the end of his life, this old aging apostle said, how can I describe God for my disciples and dare I not miss a single nuance of the identity of God? How can I describe God in that way? He said, God is light and God is love. If you stay in the light and you stay in the love, you will not deviate far. The 613 principles of the Old Testament law can all be summarized in one reality, in one verse. You see, in this encounter with this lawyer, he was right, his heart just wasn't. He summarized it and hit it dead on when he says, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what does the law teach you? And what you've read, what have you understood? There was no misunderstanding here. There was no lack of revelation here. There was no lack of, 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 of knowledge here. Man, the man spouted it out and knocked it across the fence. He looked back into the eyes of Jesus and said, I'm supposed to love God, the Lord my God, with all of my heart, my soul, my strength, and, and my neighbor as myself. And Jesus, pre-cross, Looked back into that man's eyes and said, if you do that, you will live. Because Jesus understood what a mouthful that man had said. Jesus understood what a task that is. 
Come on, somebody. Anybody know somebody in your life that you really want to love them, but it's hard? Or maybe it's not somebody in your house or your family. Maybe there's someone that did you wrong. Maybe there was a bad business deal. Maybe there was a bad moment of your life and it left a scar. Somebody made a bad decision that affected you. Or maybe you made the bad decision and it affected them. And because of that, guilt and shame has become your baggage. And you carry it day in and day out. Well, I've got good news. There is one thing that will unlock the load and release the baggage of that in your life. And it's not good works. It's not learning all the canonization of the of the saints. It's not getting all the catechism and teachings of the church. It's not having all of your, your theology nailed down. It's not getting all the kinds of theological degrees. You can have more degrees than the thermometer. And if none of those things will unlock that load and let you go. But I tell you what will is having an experience with he that is love personified, the one who is the author and the finisher of love, the one who understands love because it was his heart that gave it life in the beginning. I'm talking about the love of God as it was shown in the person of Jesus Christ, as it was revealed to us at the cross of Calvary. Amen, somebody. So they're all through the stories. We read the story about the prodigal son, and we think it's about the prodigal. It's not the story of the prodigal son. Listen, that prodigal boy was just a typical run-of-the-mill knucklehead who thought he knew it all. They were a dime a dozen. But the father wasn't a dime a dozen. No, the story wasn't about a prodigal boy. It was about a faithful father who was driven by love. It was the story of love, ladies and gentlemen. We make it about the one who did wrong. Why don't we make it about the one who did right? prodigal son, the good Samaritan story that I read in your hearing today. Uh, there's three things I want you to write down. If you have a pen or pencil or maybe your iPad or your iPhone, I, I want you to take away. These are takeaways, okay? So I'm, t- I'm kind of to the point with my messages where I just try to make them real simple. These are three takeaways I want you to walk home or drive. You can drive home, but you know I want you to uh, leave this building when you walk out to your car today to take away. What, we, what, what kind of love do we see in the story of the good Samaritan? Well, First of all, we have to kind of digest the story just a little bit, okay? So uh, Jericho was about 17 miles outside of Jerusalem. I've made the journey between Jerusalem and Jericho many times. It drops in elevation over 3,300 feet from the highlands of Jerusalem in the uh, mountains of Judea down into the lowlands near the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea being the lowest place on the planet. Jericho is about 1,200 feet below sea level. Jerusalem's a little over 2,000 feet in elevation. So when you're traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, you're always walking like this. You're always walking like this, and on this particular ancient path, there's a lot of hills. You're traveling through mountains and gullies and, and high cliffs and ridges, so it's a windy road. It's a typical place where robbers and bandits like to hang out. It's a typical place where you are vulnerable with your possessions and your life to the, uh, the nefarious intent of robbers. And it's known as a bandit's highway. They would often hide there. But isn't that how it is with us in life? A lot of times the crooked roads that we find ourselves on in life are the roads where we're most vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. It's on those roads where you better watch out. You're hanging out with the wrong crew. It's on those roads where you better watch out. You're looking at the wrong things. You're listening to the wrong sources. 
It's on those crooked roads from the heights of Jerusalem and the heights of spirituality to the lows of life. Sometimes on those crooked winding paths, there are bandits that are waiting to rob you of your possessions. Anybody in this room have ever been robbed by life, beaten by life, humiliated by life, stripped by life? Or am I the only one in the room that's had that problem? Anybody else have that problem? Most of the time it's because you're on a crooked path. You're in the wrong place at the wrong time and the enemy senses that vulnerability and capitalizes on that moment. This is the story that we find that Jesus opens up about the Good Samaritan. It's a man who's traveling from Jerusalem and he's going to Jericho. He's descending over those 3,300 feet in descent and it's a crooked and winding path. He's probably a Jew who has been to Jerusalem for commerce. Jerusalem is the capital city. It's it's the the principal arena for worship and and the the religious uh, part of the Jew's life. It is the principal banking center. The markets principally were in Jerusalem if you were going to do bigger trade. Now, Galilee was where most people lived in terms of of, uh, you could make a living in Galilee better. But Jerusalem was the New York City. It was the capital He fell among thieves, and life happened. He's stripped and he's naked. He's been left for dead. And then we see the insertion in Jesus' story of religion. Jesus said it uh, it just happened to be that a priest passed that way. Now, you would think of anybody who would stop and take interest in a wounded, bleeding, broken person. It would be a priest. But you understand that in his duties, he had to be careful lest the man was dead. And if he touched him, he would become ritually unclean. He would have been defiled. That means he would have had to travel back to Jerusalem. Priests in those days typically went and served for a week, sometimes two weeks at a time. And it would be a year again before his course would come up and his number would be picked, so to speak, and he'd leave his village and home and have to go back to Jerusalem. And so he's been there. He's been away from his family. He's been there serving, doing his job. And he's on his way back home for a little siesta, a little rest, a little refreshing, a little time of renewal. If he had touched that dead body, he would have had to go back to Jerusalem. And imagine this, for a week, He would have had to have stood outside the temple with all the other unclean people and go through the process of ritual cleansing to again be qualified to be and fulfill his duties as a priest. So I just am convinced that when he walked over or he saw that man laying over there, he thought, my religious duties are too great. And I'm too important a man, and my responsibilities, plus my wife and children have been without me for all this time, a week traveling, a week there, a week home, and they're, they're wanting to hug dad when he gets home. I'm wanting to get a hug and a kiss from my wife and have dinner with my family, and, and if I go down and help this man, it's, just, it's more than an inconvenience. It could be life-altering. It could change Everything. So his religious duties did not allow him the prerogative of showing compassion. There's a reason that Jesus inserts that into the story. Here's this just typical guy, merchant, falling among thieves. Life's happened and he's had a bad day. I mean, it's, it's a bad, bad moment. He says a priest comes by and refuses to do anything lest he be disqualified in some way. Maybe somebody will think, well, the priest did it. Maybe somebody will, maybe it will tarnish his reputation. 
And to add insult to injury, he says, and it wasn't long after the priest rejected the man that a Levite, this was a deacon, this was an elder, this was somebody that wasn't preaching, but this is somebody that was serving in the temple. Another one who made their living and for the very same reasons couldn't serve this person who was down and out and destitute. When the responsibility, ladies and gentlemen, to our religious duties cause us to miss the point of our religion, we have been consumed with legalism. I need a better amen than that because that is true. And we can be, we can be legalistic in that and not have long dresses and long clothes and long hair and our traditional, oh, that person's legalistic. When we look at the outward appearance, there are a lot of people that look like everybody else but are bound up in legalism in some form or some fashion that prohibits them from demonstrating the love of God. That's what this story is all about. Legalism, if you have to be careful with legalism because it will allow for the practice of religion without the necessity of a God. That was Nicodemus' problem. He knew the 613 precepts. He didn't need God. He'd had them figured out. He knew how to keep them. He knew what they were. God, I got this. I can handle this. I'll just do all the things I'm supposed to do at the right times I'm supposed to do them and everything will be all right, won't it? Won't that save me? In the middle of the night, in this nighttime encounter, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, it's not as simple as keeping the rules. It's not. Nicodemus calls them the complications of his life, the place that he lived in, the complications that he performed his religion in. Jesus said it's more complicated than your complications because here's the real root of the issue, Nicodemus. You've got to be born of the love of God. You've got to experience the love of God. You've got to experience the thing that gives religion animation and that makes it, gives it, it gives it meaning. You see, without the love of God, this is just a tank of water. Are y'all in the room? Without the love of God, without the love of God, the communion elements that we share is just a cup of grape juice and a broken piece of wafer. But you add the love of God and suddenly they, they transcend their religious ideas and become spiritual. They become meaningful. They become transformative. The secret sauce is not better religious tools and rules. The secret sauce of the kingdom is the love of God. The same writer John, not the writer Luke, but the same writer John who told us that God was love said, how can you say that you love God that you have not seen if you don't love the people of God that you have seen? Well, amen, Brother Brassfield. Then the next character we see in the story is a Samaritan. You have to understand this story is racially charged. Because everyone in the audience Jesus is talking to would have despised Samaritans. <laughs> I mean, everyone. There would have been a collective gasp. They're okay when he's talking about the Jewish guy that fell into the bad happenings of life. They're okay when he talks about the thieves and the robbers on the road from Jer Jerusalem to Jericho. They're even okay when he talks about the preoccupied priest and the preoccupied Levite. That's all. Yeah, yeah, I heard of that. Yeah, that happens. But then all of a sudden, Jesus makes the hero of the story a Samaritan. Them there would have been fighting words. 
No, no, that wasn't just a, a, a little uh, 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 literary device that Jesus used. No, no, that wasn't just a convenience of the story. That was the master and the creator of the universe poking his eye, his finger in the eye of religious form and ritual. That was the, that was the creator of the universe saying, you think you've got it all figured out, but let me tell you, you ain't got nothing figured out because the Samaritan is more like God than you and your religion. The Samaritan, ladies and gentlemen, is not you and me. No, the Samaritan was Jesus. <laughs> the priest was religion that couldn't work. The Levite was religion that couldn't work. The man who fell among thieves was just an old good Jewish brother that had fallen among thieves. But Jesus said, I'll tell you who the hero of the story is. It's a Samaritan. And we see Jesus step in. Jesus made himself the hero and the zero of the story at the same time. Knowing they would despise a story that would celebrate a Samaritan. Knowing that they would despise any kind of literary story that made a hero out of an outcast. And Jesus, you understand that's where Jesus came from. He came from heaven and the glory of the Father. He knew that he was equal with the Father and that was no, there was no assault on the Godhead and no assault on the, on the godness of God for him to be equal with God. Yet Paul says that he emptied himself and made of himself no reputation and took on the form of a servant. He descended, you understand, the, the height of his high and the depths of his condensation. This is revealed in the Good Samaritan story where Jesus said, I came from the heights of heaven, but I found myself in the ditch as a Samaritan. But I am compelled with compassion. You see, Jesus had, he had to what would have been the norm, he had something different about him. There, there was a, there was, I, I don't want to call it an illness. But you understand when everyone else is sick, the, the whole can look sick. He, was, he had a compulsion for compassion. This is what the love of God will cause you to do. You will be compelled. And then lastly, we see the innkeeper. This is a type of the church. Here's where we are. <laughs> so the good Samaritan stopped, found the man. He poured in the oil and the wine. He bandaged up. He used of his resource and his provision. He lifted the man up and put him on his animal, and he carried him to the church. And get the imagery of this. A good Jewish community. Here comes a Samaritan with a broken Jew on his animal. you got to pause and laugh a little bit because this is not something you see every day. But Jesus embeds it in his story. When he gets there, he speaks to the innkeeper. And he says, I want you to take care of this broken man. The next morning, he says, I'm going to have to leave. And here's all the resource you know. I'm going to give you the gifts. Listen, I'm going to give you the gifts. I'm going to give you the talents. I'm going to give you the money. I'm going to give you the resources. And I want you to take care of him. And I am going away. 
But do not be deceived. I will come again. And when I come again, I'm going to evaluate how you took care of the broken that I brought you. No, no, it's not going to be just, oh, everything's right. No, no, when I get back, we're going to do an accounting. And if you have spent more than I gave you, I'm going to owe you one. But the implication is if you don't take care of this man, if you don't take care of this man that I have brought to you and I have given you the resource to care for, forgive the way I say it, but perhaps the implication is there will be hell to pay. In this story, we see the purpose of the church. It's love. Not to judge. Not to show prejudicial treatment. We are especially equipped to love by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm almost through. They asked Mother Teresa. 60 years she worked with the downcast and the, and the, the ostracized of Calcutta. She began on the streets ministering to the downcast, then began to work with the lepers and ultimately moved her ministry to the leper colonies and spent six decades there. When she died, that majority Hindu and Muslim nation gave that little Catholic nun the funeral for a head of state. Think about that. Say, well, I don't know about the power of love. Listen, people may not understand God. They may not understand the things of God. They may not have the truth, but they see love. They know love when they see it. They know love when they see it. And that principally majority Hindu and Muslim nation gave that Catholic nun, that Christian Catholic nun, the funeral of a head of state. Before she died, they asked her, Mother Teresa, how did you do it? She said, I only did what love demanded. I only did what love demanded. She said, I was called upon by God to serve Jesus in his many distressing disguises. His many distressing disguises. See, when she looked into the eyes of a leper, she looked into the eyes in her mind of Jesus. And she poured out that love that God had put in her heart back on Jesus in that person. Those three things that I wanted you to write down, here they are. When we see the love of God exemplified in this story, first of all, it's a sacrificial love where you've got to move out of your safety zones. You've got to move off your pedestal and off your high perch. You've got to move off what you think is right and everybody else is wrong and you're going to help them but you're not helping them that you're going to love them but you're not loving them you've got to move away from that because the love of Christ compels us it's a sacrificial love the second kind of love is it's a love without limits and boundaries those priests knew they should not cross those boundaries religiously and they did not but the love of God sometimes says you've got to cross the line And then thirdly, it's a love that demands expression. It's a love that said, I must do whatever love demands. Stand with me, would you?
What does love demand of us today? So we learn from this story that the love of God is not passive. It's not willing to be silent. We learn that the story of love is a love that demands action. Some of us say, well, I want the love of God in my life, and you need to go home and call somebody on the phone and forgive them because love commands it and demands it of you. You see, I believe as I prepared this message, ladies and gentlemen, you know I love you all. I love you all. I've loved you for years and will continue to love you. There's no, there's no accusation. There's no condemnation in this message at all other than just a challenge to all of us to don't be passive in our Christian love. Go and do what love demands of you. Don't worry about all the sordid details and all the things that have to be worked out. Just take a step of faith and say, if love requires me to forgive, then I'm going to find that person and I'm going to forgive them. If love demands that I go, that I'm going to go. I'm not going to overthink it. I'm going to go. If love demands that I do something, give someone a second chance, then I'm going to give them a second chance, whether it's appealing to my sense of propriety or morality or not. Whether they fit the conventional forms of what I think they should con- or not. You're not endorsing their lifestyle by loving and forgiving them. Three things I want to say to you as we prepare to pray. You see, because I'm talking about this as individuals, but how many know this is also collective? I mean, this is what God speaks to all of us individually today in the law of love. But the truth is the law of love is also a corporate application. It's something we do collectively as a body. What I see in this story There are three kinds of churches that I see in this story. And I know that we have the heart. I know pastor's heart. I know that we have the heart to be all three. First of all, we want to be a church that heals. Say with me, I want to be part of a church that heals. I I want the whole Hippocratic oath. You know, I want to be part of a church that does no harm. I don't mean a church that doesn't stand for anything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I want to be a a part of a church that at its core has a heartbeat that's throbbing for the love of God for other people like the Good Samaritan was. Uh, Healing is the first order of business in Jesus' story. Not race, not gender, not political affiliation. A man was hurt and needed to help. Seek to heal the wounds first and foremost. Seek to understand before we demand to be understood. Seek seek to alleviate the pain of others before our own convenience. Do the work of the ministry, the Apostle Paul would say. Pour in the oil and the wine. There was no questionnaires to fill out when when the good Samaritan descended into the ditch. He didn't ask anything about that man. He looked at his condition and said, what can I do? What do I have? So let's not let our focus be on theological precision, but let it be on the compulsion for compassion that Jesus was driven with. Proper instruction is needed and important. That's the work of the innkeeper. It's important in the recovery process that good doctrine brings holistic paths for healing and restoration to the broken. But the first order of the day is to climb off our high horse. To climb, I shouldn't say that. To climb off our animal <laughs> To climb off our religious pretense, let me say it that way, and to, cl- and to get into the ditch with the broken. Be a church that heals. Number two, be a church that unites. The principal teaching of the Apostle Paul and Peter, for that matter, in the epistles 
And Paul's admonition to the fivefold ministry was largely one of unity. The story of Jesus was inclusive, it was uniting. The Good Samaritan worked in unison with the innkeeper. We all have a part to play. Listen, I'm closing. We all have a part to play. No one needs to be a spectator in the local church. I need a better amen than that. No one needs to be a spectator in the local church. We all have gifts. We all can serve someone in some way. We all can serve someone in some way. Find who you can serve and make a difference. Find your lane. Determine, listen, determine to be approachable and unoffendable. And if you'll do that, you will increase your profitability as a servant. It's hard for God to use people that are always waiting for somebody to rub them the wrong way. And number three, be a church that elevates. A church that looks up. A church that lives up. A church that loves up. And we'll be a church that fills up. I've always heard when raising children, you should always speak to their highest, most noble potential when correcting them and talking to them. And I believe there's a lot of truth in that. It's good for everyone. We don't want to talk down to people. We don't want to look down on people. We want to be a church that elevates people. Be a church, be a member that elevates the conversation. When the conversation begins to trail off into something that's negative and critical, be a member that stops the conversation and said, let's turn this conversation upward. Speak words of faith. See beyond what people are today and their current condition to what they could be tomorrow. The good Samaritan lifted the man out of the ditch, put him on his beast of burden, elevated the man out of his downcast position. I want to be part of a church like that. Amen. Bow your heads. Lord, I thank you.